Brethren, I invite you to turn in your copies of the Scripture to 2 Samuel chapter 6. As we continue through the latter half of David's life found in 2 Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 6. Hear once again the very word of God. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all, his house, all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cistrons, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez-Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was, when those hearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all his house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through the window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, 
It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you've spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we hear of David's seeking and bringing the, the Ark of the Covenant to the temple or to the tabernacle that he erected in Jerusalem for the worship of you, we thank you that this account gives us insight as to your character and the importance of worship and what our character ought to be as we come to worship you. Father, we thank you for David's example. And, and though we see uh, what appears to be strange things happening here, a man dies and a woman is cursed, uh, Father, we pray that we would understand these things according to your word, that they would impress upon us the importance of proper worship for you. And we ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, brethren, we progress to chapter 6 in 2 Samuel, and David is on the throne of all Israel at a time of peace. Up until this time, it's been over seven years that Israel has been in a civil war. Prior to that, they were at war with the Philistines. As we saw two weeks ago in chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5, the Philistines were routed twice by the outburst of God against them through the, through the, uh, the armies of Israel uh, under the command of David. The, second one, the first one being uh, a frontal attack that God promised David would utterly destroy the Philistines. And the second one, a rear ta- attack being led by uh, the wind passing through the mulberry trees, uh, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit going before uh, us, the church, to attack and subdue the enemies of God with the gospel. In this time of peace, David turns his attention to the restoration of Israel's theocentric culture, much of which had been lost under Saul's reign. God was not the center of Saul's reign. He seldom sought wisdom from God. Only in the most dire of moments did he even seek out Samuel's help. And at the end of his life, he was looking to the witch of Endor for wisdom. David, on the other hand, it seems at every turn seeks the face of God for wisdom and discernment. And now in the time of peace, where God has subdued the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, who were close at hand, David continues to want to honor God by restoring the tabernacle worship. He's built a tabernacle in Jerusalem, and he's gone now to find and return the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat of God, to the, to the tabernacle. This is a crucial, crucial restoration because absent 
the animal sacrifice, with the blood being sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, forgiveness for the people of Israel could not be had. There's a second aspect of today's sermon that is foretelling of the blessing of God on all nations and His designs for worship. And I'm going to point that out. It has specifically to do with where the the ark has temporary lodging when David's bringing it back. And then lastly, we shall consider the Davidic expansion of music in the worship of the Lord. Well, first, let's begin with the reclamation of the mercy seat, the ark of the covenant. Just a quick note about the ark itself. You'll remember that this was constructed by God's command after Sinai when, when Moses returns with the law of God. It, very specific uh, instructions were made as to its length and breadth and height, uh, what it was to be overlaid with, with gold. It was to have cherubim on the top of it with their, their wings outstretched the center of it being the mercy seat of God where the blood of the animal sacrifices would be sprinkled. And that was the place where the Lord dwelled. His Shekinah glory would fall from the heavens into the tabernacle and would rest upon this this box that held Aaron's staff, uh, uh, held a copy of the Ten Commandments. It held uh, manna from heaven. these, these uh, uh, ex- exhibits of God's graciousness toward His people. Brethren, that's a picture of the heart of the believer. That the tree of life is represented in Aaron's staff which was budding forever. The Ten Commandments. Those commandments that God writes on our hearts in the New Covenant and on our minds. And the manna from heaven is a, is, is a picture of God's sacrament of continuing blessing to His people. All of this was part and parcel of the Ark of the Covenant. And so, bringing it back to the tabernacle where it was supposed to be used in worship. Not worshipped itself. God Himself was to be worshipped. But this was to be part of the worship of God. It was very important. I want to take us back to when the Ark was lost. You'll remember in the earlier parts of 1 Samuel, Eli was the judge of Israel. He was the high priest. And he had two sons, Phinehas being one and Hophni the other. These men were wicked men and yet had a priestly responsibility in Israel, ironically. The Israelites were going to war with the Philistines in the early part of 1 Samuel in chapter 4. And in doing so, they brought the Ark of the Covenant to go before them, expecting God's blessing upon them for that. They lost the battle with the Philistines, and the Ark was taken captive by the, the Philistines and spirited off to one of their major, five major cities. I believe it was Ashdod where the Ark would first go. Upon hearing of the news of the ark's capture, Eli, the judge, back in Israel, fell off his chair backward and broke his neck and died. His daughter-in-law, who was pregnant at the time, upon hearing of the news of her husband's death and the death of Eli and the capture of the ark, gave birth to a son and named him Ichabod, meaning 
the glory of the Lord has departed. And she died shortly after childbirth. Now the ark remained in the possession of the Philistines for seven months. God's presence was with it, but not in blessing, as had been the case when the ark was in the presence of the Israelites, but rather in judgment. Two plagues came upon the Philistines for desecrating the ark. They had taken it to a temple, the temple of Dagon, and placed it in that temple next to Dagon as if God's mercy seat was subservient to a pagan god. The next morning, Dagon, the, the statue of Dagon was on its face. It had fallen over. And the Philistines would ride it again and then it would fall over again. And this went on for a while. But not only that, two curses came upon the Philistines. One called tumors. We call it hemorrhoids. And the other was rats. God infested Philistia with rats. After seven months, in the midst of this suffering, the Philistines had had enough. They carried the cart off with five golden tumors and five golden rats as a trespass offering to the Lord, the Lord God, put it on a brand new cart, put two cows in front of it to carry the ark away and sent it off toward Israel. They didn't go with it, but they, they watched from a distance to make sure it, it actually uh, uh, got to its destination. When the cart passed through the outskirts of Philistia and into Israelite territory, the Israelites rejoiced at the ark's return and spirited away into a wooded mountainous region called Kiriath-Jerim, presumably to hide it. Now remember, at this point in time, the Philistines were still a great people. They were still an enemy of the Israelites. And the Israelites were in a bit of turmoil because they were without a leader. Eli had died. There was no king at this point in time. Samuel is the prophet, and he becomes the judge over Israel. And this is when Israel, fearing the nations around them, would seek to have a king appointed over them. And of course, Saul became that king. Well, the ark would stay in Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years at the household of Abinadab. That was the resting place that was chosen on a hillside in Kiriath-Jerim. Abinadab's eldest son, Eliezer, was given the responsibility for its care. But in our passage today, we have no mention of Eliezer. Not sure why that's the case. But two of Abinadab's other sons are going to be the ones, Ahio and Yuza, who will take the ark, begin the journey with the ark to Jerusalem. So the ark has been in exile, for, yes, the ark has been in exile for 20 years. And David, trying to restore the culture of Israel, which meant the temple worship, or tabernacle worship at this time, he takes 30,000 choice men with him to move the ark back to Jerusalem at the beginning of our passage. Why 30,000? Well, we're not sure. It was obviously a large number. There's no indication that they took weaponry with them. So I doubt, it, I doubt that they really feared the Philistines at this point in time. 
though the ark was right on the edge of the Philistine uh, region, um, some 40 miles uh, west of Jerusalem. Philistia, the first major city of Philistia, 50 miles west of Jerusalem. 30,000 men go, and it appears that they take musical instruments with them, not weaponry. Well, that is significant. David is, is about to begin something that we have inherited from the tabernacle worship at that time, and that is the inculcation of profound music in worship. There was music before this time. We have re- uh, recorded in the Scriptures times when musical instruments are used in worship, but not like David used them. David brought music to a new height in the worship of God. It was prominent. It was, it was uh, almost uh, overpowering in many respects. And here is the beginning of it. Well, he takes these 30,000 choice men and they go to the, where the ark was being housed at Abinadab's house. And the ark is placed on a new cart, this time being pulled by oxen with two of Abinadab's sons overseeing the transport. Again, interestingly, Eliezer, the one who had been given charge of caring for the ark while it was in Abinadab's house, is nowhere to be found in this passage. I want to say something about the transportation of the ark. When the Philistines sent it back to Israel from Ashdod, they put it on a new cart, and they put two cows to pull the cart to Israel, two cows that had never been yoked before. And they sent the ark off. And they sent it with this trespass offering of golden tumors and golden rats as if to say this would, this would somehow appease the Lord God. Well, we know what God thinks of graven images made of gold, right? Remember a calf at the base of Mount Sinai when Moses came down off the mountain? Things didn't go well with Israel that day. So obviously, the Philistines have no idea how to worship the Lord God. Ironically though, here the Israelites take up part of the practices of the Philistines. When the ark was built, each corner had a a golden ring attached to it. The purpose of which was for a pole to slide through that ring. Two poles, one on each side. The poles would slide through two rings and the Levites would carry the ark, not on an oxen cart, but literally carry it themselves. It was something that the Levites were to transport And they were to transport it with some labor. Meaning that faith in God costs something. It shows us that it it was not necessarily easy to have faith in God. It was something, can you imagine this big box that was overlain with gold and gold statues on top of it, gold rings holding it up. This was no light matter. This was a heavy box. And four men had to carry it. That was all symbolic to Israel. To be part of the Lord's worship, to do the work of faithfulness, takes some effort. It's not done simplistically. And yet the Israelites have put the ark on a cart 
They have ignored the responsibilities of the Levites here, and they're trying to take the ark back to Israel. When, the, when the, this 30,000 men with the ark on the cart, with Ahio and Uzzah, Ahio before the ark, Uzzah standing presumably next to it, when they near the threshing floor of Nacon, one of the oxen stumbles, and Uzzah puts his hand out to steady the ark and offends the Lord our God. Now you would think, why on earth would that be offensive? Why is that offensive? Well, brethren, God had designed how the ark was to be transported, and He gave that responsibility to the Levites. There's no mention of them here. There's no mention of them doing the carrying of the ark. There's no mention of them uh, reciting the law of God as it relates to those things. And yet God had very clearly declared these things to the Israelites. When Uzzah touches the ark, he presumes upon too much. Though his motives were likely very good, he presumes too much. And this is a lesson that we have to be careful about. Our worship before the Lord has to be a careful worship. In the Reformed faith, we call this the regulative principle. And depending upon where in the Reformed community you you, uh, reside depends upon how um, how important details are for you in worship, and I'm, I don't want to get into the the debate over uh, you know whether there should be musical instruments in worship, whether there should be uh, uh, songs other than psalms sung in worship. All of those details we can strain at gnats in that regard, but what we do know is that the worship of God needs to be regulated by the Scriptures. We are taught how to worship by the Scriptures, not by our own desires. And so this is a lesson that we learn here with this situation with Uzzah. Another thing that we need to take note of is this happened at a threshing floor. A threshing floor. What happens at the threshing floor uh, at harvest time? This is harvest time for for many of you who have gardens. And uh, I don't think too many of us grow uh, wheat or barley or some kind of grain like that that needs to be threshed. But at the threshing floor, you took your stalks of grain, you went to this particular place where there was a hard service, and you beat your stalks of grain until the kernel of, of the heart of the, the uh, grain comes out of the stalk, and you throw the stalk to one side and you gather up the kernels of grain which you make your bread from, That's the threshing floor. It's a place of what? Separation. And often in the Old Testament, the threshing floor was a place of judgment. Some of it good, some of it not so good. Where where did Ruth meet Boaz, for instance? Uh, There's a mention of a threshing floor there in in, in the account of Ruth and her coming to, to Boaz who would eventually marry her and she would be in the lineage of Christ and she was outside the covenant people but her faith brought her in here we're at a threshing floor and Uzzah is being separated from the people of Israel in death because of a presumptuous way to handle the ark so we have to be careful as God is careful with us 
in our salvation, we need to be we need to respond to him carefully as well. Well, what about the reclamation of the mercy seat then as it relates to other nations, not just the nation of Israel? And I'll come back to uh, um, in just a few moments uh, the importance of worship as it relates to Israel as we close out the chapter. But I do want to make a point here that I believe that all nations are comp- contemplated in the worship of God with regard to the to the uh, Ark of the Covenant being moved to Israel, back to Jerusalem. In verse 6, we begin reading these words, And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the Ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak with Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez-Uzzah to this day. Again, there's that word Perez. We saw that two weeks ago. That means the Lord bursts forth. Well, he burst forth in judgment with regard to Uzzah. Verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? If this is going to happen to Uzzah, I'm, I'm a little fearful of even bringing this close to me in the city of the capital city of Israel. So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. David has two emotions that overtake him. One is anger in verse 8. And one is fear in verse 9. The anger apparently quickly subsided, but the fear remained. Initially, David was angry. Why did Uzzah's life have to be taken? But it was overtaken by the fear of the Lord. Wait a minute. If he takes his life, what about mine? Might he also take mine if I do something wrong? This is significant. And it's significant because of where the ark winds up. It winds up in Obed-Edom's home. Well, what does Obed-Edom mean? It means son of Edom. Obed is an Edomite. This man was of Edomite lineage, not an Israelite. Well, where do the Edomites come from? In Genesis 25, Esau sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. And from that day forward, Esau is known for eating red stew or Edom. That's what it means. Red stew. That's what the word means. Edom. Red stew. Obed-Edom is the son of the red stew. Or probably better understood as the son of the one who sold his birthright for red stew. Obed-Edom. It's in his house that the ark resides now. Not only was he outside of Israel, the covenant people of God, by lineage, he was from Gath. He was a Gittite. That's in the land of God's enemies. He's a Philistine as well. Gath is one of the five major cities of Philistia. That's what it means to be a Gatite. You're from Gath. 
So not only is he a son of the red stew, but he's also from Philistia. Oh, by the way, Gath, hometown of, that's right, Goliath. The giant enemies of God. And that's where the ark winds up. In the house of a man whose lineage is both Edomite and Philistine. It remains there for three months. And while it is there, by God's providences, his house is blessed. What does this mean for us? It seems to be antithetical to all of the Old Testament. Wait a minute. God's blessing is poured out on whom? Isn't it poured out on his people, those who follow him in righteousness? Yes, but the promise of salvation wasn't just for the people of God. It was for all nations. When the promise came in Genesis 3.15 to Adam and Eve that a, that a Savior would come to the world, was it just for Abraham and his physical progeny? Or was it for the whole world? Isn't that expansion, the very expansion that Jesus came to make when He died on the cross and rose again for the the third day? That every tribe, tongue, nation, and language would be made part of the kingdom of God? This is but a glimpse here. What happens with Obed-Edom is a glimpse of what's going to happen with the whole world. God is is going to bless him. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, will reside even in the house of Gentiles. Even in the house of Gentiles. Israel was the first fruits of redemption for the whole world. And the last Adam would expand the chosen of God to all nations. For all authority has been given him in heaven and on earth. And his church will disciple the nations. Obed-Edom was a picture of what was to come. God blessed a Gentile in his household because the mercy seat was there. And notice this provoked David to a kind of jealousy. In verse 12, Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. Why was it that Obed-Edom, a Philistine and an Edomite, was blessed and the Philistines, when they had the ark in Ashdod, were cursed? Why why the difference? Why, Why do you think the difference? Well, let me suggest, first of all, the Philistines tried to make subservient the ark of the covenant in Dagon's temple. They were thumbing their nose at the Almighty. You, God, are subservient to our God, Dagon. And so they were cursed for that. Now think about Obed-Edom. Did he ask for the ark to come to his house? Or did God just choose him? Did you ask for your salvation? Or did God choose you? God in His providences brought salvation to Obed-Edom. To a Gentile. And Obed-Edom had no idea it was coming. 
What a blessing that is to see that God chooses those who will be blessed by Him, even amongst the Gentiles, you and me. Well, David's response as he sees the blessings coming to the house of Obed-Edom reminds me of Romans 11, 11 through 12, where Paul speaks of our salvation provoking Israel to jealousy that they might be grafted in again to the tree of life, having been judged in the first century. And this brings us to the last of the three emphases in this chapter. Probably the one that most ink has been spilt on. This uh, interaction with David and Michael, his wife, Saul's daughter. Throughout this passage, David's demeanor is one of joy and rejoicing. He is trying to restore proper worship to Israel. He's trying to bring back a culture that is theocentrically focused. That's what he's working toward. God has delivered them out of the hands of their enemies, and David is trying to bring the focus of all Israel back to that theocentric focus. And he wants to do it with joy and rejoicing. God has delivered them miraculously on many occasions. And now David is bringing the the Ark of the Covenant, the very mercy seat of God, back into their presence, into the city of David. The Lord strikes down Uzzah. He's going to curse Michael here very quickly. But all of this is happening, happening in the midst of David's merrymaking, his rejoicing. Because God provides. He's the God that provides. Now, as I mentioned before, there's been a great deal of ink spilt on the description of David's dress from this passage. But brethren, that is not the emphasis of the passage. Nor should it be our emphasis. David, as the king of Israel, is attempting to restore biblical worship in Israel, which necessarily includes profound rejoicing. Worship without rejoicing is abominable in the sight of God. Let me say that again. Worship without rejoicing is abominable in the sight of God. How do I know that? Well, when you get to, to the book of Revelation and you read about the, the churches in Revelation, is there not a church who is lukewarm? To God, it's neither hot nor cold. It appears that there's some evidence of of faithfulness there, but it's not hot or cold. And what does God do? He spews it out of His mouth. That is the consequence of lukewarm churches. Oh, that we would never be that way. And worship that is not filled with rejoicing is is the kind of thing that is evidence of a lukewarm church. Worship without rejoicing is abominable in the sight of God. It is lifeless, and that is the lesson we should learn from Michael in this passage. David's wife. I believe her true concern was not what David was wearing, but what he wasn't wearing. His kingly robes. He was wearing a linen ephod. 
not his kingly robes. David was identifying with the people of God in humility as one of the great cloud of witnesses, one of the chosen of Israel, as the other people in Israel were chosen by God. He was not identifying as the king. And I believe this was her her great concern. The last time we saw Michael in David's presence was at another window in 1 Samuel. David was fleeing Saul and Michael lowers David out of a window from the palace, Saul's palace. David is now coming back in, a, in rejoicing with the people of God and she is still at a palace window looking out upon David. She's not with him rejoicing and making merry before the Lord because the Ark of the Covenant has returned. The rest of Israel's out there, men and women both. There's a particular uh, uh, reference to that. When, David, when, it, when the days ended, David gives to men and women, typically it was just given to the head of the household, the blessing. But he, here, the blessing is given to the men and the women of bread, meat, and cakes of raisins. And they go home to continue their feasting before the Lord. Michael's nowhere to be found. She's held up in the palace, looking out the window, criticizing her husband. Michael's comments speak more about the unkingly nature of David's apparel than his humility before God, which he is emphasizing. And David's retort to Michael speaks of even greater humility that must be expressed by the faithful the faithful men and women of God to God. God honors David's humility, but sanctions Michael with a curse of lifelessness from her womb because her concerns were self-centered and lifeless. David is trying to lead his people in humility. And Michael wants the honor of his position. What is striking is the profound expansion of music in the worship of God here. Even in the midst of, of uh, this final uh, arrival at the tabernacle in Jerusalem. Brethren, this is a foretaste of the New Testament worship and our worship in the post-New Testament times. The writer of Hebrews pens these words as he describes the tabernacle worship of God. Therefore, by Him, meaning God, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Those very words could have been used of David as he entered Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant. A sacrifice of praise is being given to God. And not just that, but good works that follow as David feeds the people of God with God's good gifts. Brethren, we're about to feed on the Lord Jesus Christ. God does that with us, does He not? Does He not call us into His presence to offer a sacrifice of praise that He delights in? And yes, we are to be careful how that's done. And I believe we are here at Trinity. But He delights in having us in His presence, 
offering that sacrifice of praise. Brethren, we have music because God made music and wants it to be used in His worship. There's a reason we sing many psalms. Often I get the the comment from visitors, boy, you guys sing a lot in worship. Yeah, that's right. Because we want to give a sacrifice of praise. That's what we're doing. And we want it to be heartily done. And we have some buildings that, that aid us in that greatly. Music has to be part of your life as Christians. And it should be a joyous part of your life. Now, you, you might say, well, Pastor Hickey, I can't, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. Well, you can on your iPhone. You can in your, your homes on a phonograph. And if you don't know what that is, children, talk to me later. I'll tell you what a phonograph is. You, you, you can enjoy music and you can hum along with those things and you can rejoice in that even though you're not the one producing it. But truly, truly, when we corporately gather together to offer that sacrifice of praise, regardless of your ability, I would encourage you, make a joyful sound unto the Lord. He delights in your praise. He delights in it. And His people ought to rejoice in His presence with great joy. Let us pray together.